Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars related to game design and publishing. These panels have been made possible thanks to Double Exposure and their game design convention Metatopia at Metatopia Online 2020. These panels have also been made possible thanks to the kind contributions of the panel speakers and moderators at this event. Now, let's get to it. Episode 319, Feminist World Building. Presented by Misha Bushyager, Elsa Shunison, and Kristen Roberts. Welcome to Metatopia 2020. Uh, I would write this time. Uh, <laughs> this is the It's the Little Touches That Make It Home panel. Uh, I'm Misha B. I'll be one of your hosts, along with... Uh... I'll let Elsa and Kristen introduce themselves. Uh... Uh, I'm Elsa Hunason. My pronouns are she, her. I'm the creator of the Fate Accessibility Toolkit, which was nominated for a Nebula Award in 2020 for Best Game Writing. And the creator of Dead Scare, which was about 1950s housewives fighting zombies in a Soviet-engineered apocalypse. Hey, guess what? McCarthy was the antagonist. Guess who we just kicked out? Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> and so I've been doing feminist game building for a while. Um, my background is in disability activism, and 90% of people know me for that. Kristen, your turn. <laughs> uh, so I'm Kristen Roberts, pronouns uh, she, her. I'm a fictional food and culture consultant and a recipe developer and a game designer, game writer. Uh, my focus is usually on like really, really in-depth world building and how to add food, agriculture, and um, just like your environment and all of these little things into your world building to make it very rich uh, and bring it to life. Uh, and I'm Ishibi. Uh I've actually wrote with uh, Elsa on Dead Scare, which was fun experience. Uh, uh, I'm a gamer, I'm a crafter, I'm a designer, uh, and, and a cook, and mom, and so all those little things that you then bring those experiences into uh, game design. And we're going to talk about how you can do that some. Um, so let's start with, uh, let's start with food, because food is, 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 you know, you can't have a society that doesn't I mean, society starts when you we share food. Uh, so, so how are some of the ways that we can uh, bring food and the experiences around food into our world building to make it richer? Kristen, this is your wheelhouse. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think uh, it kind of depends. Like, if we're if we're coming at it from like we're building a world then the first thing I always tell everyone is look at the biome and the agriculture that you want your people to be living in. Um, and if even if it's a fantasy or an alien landscape, you have to think about what that looks like and what, um, what kind of food would grow there and what kind of animals would be there. Oh, I think we just lost Christian for a moment. We did. Um, um. But so, yeah. to that line, I thought was going. Um, uh -huh. I, I think, you know, you do have to think about where the food comes from. 
Where I tend to come from on this is actually more about food traditions. So I'm going to jump in on that for a second, which is that everybody knows certain food rules. You know, if, if you're in the Game of Thrones universe and you eat bread and salt, hey, guess what? You're protected for the night. If you roll up to somebody's house in Regency England and you are invited for tea, that's a very big deal. If you come to uh, the neighborhood that I grew up in, which is Fort Greene, New York, and they give you the mac and cheese recipe and you are the only white kid for 16 blocks. Yes, Misha's like, yeah, huh? <laughs> so that's, those are all different kinds of food traditions and they all tell you who is in community and who is out of community, who doesn't get poisoned and who does. And I, I think that that is often a part of women's work is deciding who is in and outside of community because of who gets food. That uh, things like yeah, yeah. Ah, she's coming back. Okay, cool. Um, <laughs> uh, so yes, we can see you now. Uh, so one of the things that uh, you were talking about with like who gets the recipes and who doesn't, you know, even little things like okay, I've my family has moved uh, and I've married into this family. Do I get? Mm -hmm. Do I bring? Did Grandma give me her recipes? Do I get the recipes from my husband's mother? Do I get? Uh, does the, does the new family accept me? And and so it's like my father's mother died before my mom ever met my dad. So there are some recipes that my dad talks about and she's been trying to recreate for like nearly 50 years now, but she can't because they were lost. And so little things like that, just like how do you continue those traditions uh, and, and yeah. who gets to continue those? And that's actually an interesting thing to think about is that some culinary lines get broken and some don't. I have my family's shukbula recipe, which is Swedish meatballs, that goes back, I think, 200 years that line hasn't been broken, and a lot of that is because of privilege. Mm -hmm. The Swedes have not been genocided out. That's why we still have that recipe. I don't know. Um, did I cut out before I said anything before? I wasn't sure when I cut you out. Stopped, uh, we were t you had stopped around food traditions, which is why we took the tangent on food traditions. So. Uh, Fair. Yeah, um, cool. So going, going off of what you guys are saying, um, there's one example that I always like to use of um, St. Lucia, one of the islands, uh, one of the Caribbean islands. Because of the slaves that were brought there during colonialization, they have an incredibly interesting um, food culture there now. So it's this amazing, amazing mix of um, like Latin American, African, and Indian. And it's just this combination that like, if, I mean, it's horrible the reason why that it got there, but the fact that they have generated this whole new like culinary tradition that uses French techniques, but is like amazing Indian flavors. It, it's so crazy to have all of those things come together in such like a beautiful way. And I think it's also telling when we talk about how we build characters, where people come from, right? Um, my partner is from Indonesia. You wouldn't know that if you looked at him, he looks like a normal cis white man from the United States. 
Uh, and yet the things that make him feel like he's at home are obscenely spicy curries that you can only find in certain parts of Indonesia. Uh, so like what, what people find as comfort food often tells us a lot about where they come from. And I think that that's a really useful thing for when we world build, but also when we build characters. Like, where are your characters from? Like, what actually makes them happy? It doesn't have to be the same boring nonsense that you've had in the past, because it could be that they're from an interesting place. Or that they had interesting people in their lives. Because what if it was, you know, they they had an adopted something or another that brought food from some other location that would have been alien to them. So, yeah, it adds this this like interesting detail and and again we're always just trying to find things to talk to each other about these fake characters we came up with so is even like the littlest detail can bring on a full conversation that can be incredibly interesting now, one of my favorite questions to ask when when people are, are making up the characters is what's your character's favorite memory of what their grandmother made for them i like that and, a lot just, yeah and it's just like yeah. it will like trip and it kind of just leads into this like whole rich like you can see like their faces light up because they're remembering what their grandmother made for them, and it's in there's there's always something you know. And I also yeah. think it's really interesting how we talk about food from a from a racial perspective, and I say that because I'm Swedish, and everybody talks about my food like it's boring. <laughs> It's like, oh, it's white people food. That sounds boring. And I'm like, I don't, I don't. Have you ever had moose heart? Because I have questions. <laughs> um, and I think that something that's been happening that I've seen is that we sort of boil down the concept of sort of cultural foods into white or ethnic. And I think that that's causing some issues. Like it causes issues on both sides. Like on the one hand, you're basically saying, all white people just eat a whole bunch of fried shit. And on the other hand, you're exoticizing everything else. And mm -hmm. so I think that we need to look at sort of, I don't want to use the word multiculturalism, but we need to look at the variety of food that exists and recognize that there is a whole lot out there that we're actually not talking about. That's a, that's a thing that I really try to bring up a lot when I do consults, because like, I think one of the pitfalls that I'll see a lot of people who are world building fall into is um, relying too heavily on analogs and often in a way that's kind of appropriative and problematic. Mm -hmm. That's why I always tell people to take that step back. Let's look at your agriculture and then build from there because then you can talk about, well, what actually grows in this region? And you can do research on like similar areas in the real world to kind of get those pieces together but then you can fit it together like a puzzle into like a whole new combination with inspirations from all sorts of different things. I mean, even just like the, the food cultures of what is the primary grain that your civilization eats? Are you a rice? Are you a wheat? Are you a rye? Are you a, um, are you a maize? Are you, what is the primary grain that your peoples eat? And those or different things will lend to different agricultural styles in different areas where those things grew better or worse. Like rice doesn't really grow so good in like deep cold mm. north areas. So if your people are like, oh yes, we're Vikings, we eat rice and we're gonna that doesn't make sense. <laughs> Unless <laughs> in your world the Vikings are in the water areas. 
<laughs> well, it's funny because that's actually a conversation I've had with my rabbi too, has been how kosher changes, at least culturally. Like if you're Jewish and you are from say a Swedish region, like hello, um, you can take my seafood out of my cult dead hands. I will eat crayfish and shrimp and scallops and all of these things and they are not kosher, but you know what, it's culturally relevant. In a way yeah. that in the South, a lot of Jews eat pork because it is culturally relevant, even, mm -hmm. if, they're, even if they're Jewish. So I, I think that sort of recognizing that culture is sometimes more important in those spaces is also a huge part of what's a deciding factor. And kind of bringing this back to sort of the touches that make it home, I think that in terms of specifically keeping kosher or keeping sort of a faith-based kitchen often falls to women. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So when you are building these faith spaces in your worlds and in your games, there's also that question of who is keeping that specific tradition alive. And just off of that, such a huge keystone and touchstone is just the hearth and the importance of the hearth in in cross-cultural. Like, and they can look very different. They can feel very different. Um, they can be in different parts of the home. But yeah, absolutely. Who keeps that hearth? And it being the center of family is so important, a cornerstone for so many traditions. I'm going to put on my historian hat for a second. <laughs> um, I have one of those. Go for it. <laughs> so, like, there's this concept of women's work, right? And, I mean, we want to talk about games from a gender-neutral space a lot of the time, but I think it is important to acknowledge the concept of women within game spaces. And women's work has been a concept for a long time. But the concept of women's work changes depending on what era you're talking about. So in the 1950s, women's work was very specific. When I wrote Dead Scare, I talked about weaponizing Hoover vacuums. <laughs> like, you know, we're trying to create this space of the industrialization of women's work and the industrialization of home cleanliness and all of that stuff. You go back, you know, to the 1700s and women's work looks very different. So, Ask yourself what that actually looks like, what your context is, and who's doing what, especially depending on what kind of a space you're working in. If you're working in a low-class home, women's work is literally everything. If you are working in a upper-class home in the Victorian era, women's work is looking pretty and talking to guests while the scullery maid does all of the women's work. So where race and class intersect with women's work also matter. Mm -hmm. uh, and even from like a fashion perspective to, to bring it into like the textiles uh, mm -hmm. is things like earlier gowns and courts things were uh, primarily done by men because you needed strength to do some of those tasks and to like actually get the bones wrapped around uh, corsets properly and industrialization uh, made a that easier so women could do it more often. Uh, and so they didn't have to do something like the underlayers. And so the outer layers uh, became a part of it that were easier to do at home. So some of it shifted from men's work to women's work. And there was like big fights over. It's like, no, we, we kind of need to keep that at home. 
Uh, and you'll see some of the same things happening uh, in the other direction with uh, embalming and, and death rituals uh, as that rose in the uh, 1860s or so uh, because of, you know, wars and being able to ship uh, bodies long distance as opposed to burying them at home became a, a, a difference. Um, and oh, look. hey, kitty. Uh, uh, so men did the embalming. And so it shifted from women at home preparing a body for death and for burial to, okay, now this is a profession and men are going to take over it and people are going to get paid to do this. And now it is no longer women's work because people are getting paid and women don't get paid. Same with teaching, same with food, your chef versus your home cook being two very different things. Like it's, it is a really interesting thing. <laughs> I mean, I think it's also, um, as death became more ritualized, you know, we think about the fact that in every television show that we've ever watched, it's always a Christian burial service, right? It's always about how we interact with sort of this industrialized, Christianized space of death versus how a lot of spaces are not like that. I'm actually thinking a lot about how when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, the Jewish community really had to push the fact that Jews don't bring flowers to graves. Mm -hmm. We had to be like, no, 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 you bring rocks. Like, please bring stones, don't bring flowers. And that work again felt a lot to women. Yes, we know. <laughs> um, but I think that there is this sort of question of like, who holds power? I'm sorry, this cat is cracking me up. Who, who holds power in, uh, in death spaces too, right? Like the concept of the Morrigan is the maiden, the mother and the crone. And uh, there's very much this concept of like women are in charge of birth and death in those specific patternings and how we bring that into games, I think actually could be interesting. Definitely, death rituals are, are fascinating and weird all at the same time to me. I mean, I, I both fear death and, and dead things, but also find them morbidly fascinating. Like I've been watching a lot of Caitlin Doty uh, videos, which just, I go look, her series is called Ask a Mortician on YouTube. I highly recommend it for everybody. It's it's just the right amount of, hey, this is an interesting fact that I'm going to present matter-of-factly and even slightly humorously, but it's a serious topic. Um, and so some of it is history and some of it is, hey, this is these are weird things that have happened, um, like, you know, saint's bones and, and things like that. And like how, hey, how do we have 20 fingers of this saint scattered all over the world can somebody just I, can somebody explain this to me um but it's, i mean it's 20 fingers person. there's multiple hearts <laughs> yeah like but and like or which saints are considered incorrupt versus corrupt and it's like that just it's like floors me um but some of the so some of those traditions and and those those facts around uh death um and the different rituals and even finding some of the things that are in common among different uh, faith traditions uh, surrounding death rituals and, and how those can, are both interesting and, and different at the same time. Um, 
And I lost my train of thought there. It's been a long day. Yeah, it has. <laughs> <It's pretty late. laughs> so if you don't mind me interjecting, yeah, but for just talking about death also makes me think, um, Elsa, you brought up uh, birth as well. And I, I think about midwives and that, that same idea that midwives in the home, when it is women's work, they took care of it all. And then when it became industrialized, that power was taken away from women to do to help other women and brought into this sanitized space of um, hospitals with doctors and not making any judgment call on either one. There was a lot of knowledge that ends up being lost in that translation. Uh, a lot of which I don't think we've really necessarily recovered. Um, I highly recommend for people who want to look at that transition more carefully to watch Call the Midwife because Call the Midwife has really shown kind of how that transition worked in England from the NHS to the hospitalization and sort of what it was like. And certainly it has a perspective on that. But I, I think it really gives you a good sense of what it was like to make that change in uh, low-income communities in the UK. So it's certainly worth taking a look at if that's sort of a space you want to write about. You know, I, I got to say thank you for that recommendation because I've been looking at that and not sure if I should watch it. So now I'll definitely take a look. Oh, it's so good. Let me let me wax rhapsodic about Call the Midwife for a second. <laughs> it is racially inclusive. It is disability inclusive. It is It tackles abortion really beautifully. It also has like, it really handles disability well. There's an episode where a blind mom, this is of course this most recent season, but there's a blind mom who is like family, is like she can't be a parent, she's blind. And the midwives actually push back. There are characters with Down syndrome who get to live in community with other Down syndrome characters and who actually like get to have relationships. It is not just, you know, it deals with poverty. It deals with like a whole bunch. It deals with alcoholism. Like, it is a beautifully put together show. And it certainly has its issues. I'm not going to say it doesn't, but I think that it is a show worth watching and talking about. That's fantastic. And and even with, uh, with, with giving birth, uh, some of the things that have changed over the years, like things like uh, women have gone from giving birth in a squatting position to this like bed position. And that's because one of the Louis wanted to watch his kids being born. And so now everybody labors on their back. Yeah. <laughs> Fun fact. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, yeah. And it's not Go ahead. Sorry, Misha, go ahead. You said Queen Victoria is the reason. Oh, Queen Victoria is the reason why women get knocked out. Mm -hmm. Because she was like, I would like to have pain medication, please. And she was the Queen of England, so they did it for her. Yeah. Uh, look, I am all for pain medication, but like, ether to knock you completely a little too far, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Just, like, we don't need to completely knock out birthing mothers, because that's, that's just, maybe, you know, but definitely, I, I want the drugs, please. I, I had them with both kids. They turned out fine. If you don't want them, that's also fine. It's your choice. But, you know, I, I want my, I, I, 
I wouldn't ask you to set a broken leg or drill my tooth without pain meds. So why do I have to give birth without pain meds? That's just my opinion. Sure. Yeah. Uh, As a disabled person who has had a number of really unpleasant medical procedures, I am all for the drugs. Why <laughs> <laughs> suffer if you don't have to? Uh, which which brings us to that's another uh, avenue of of traditionally feminine things is like medicines and and yeah. uh, uh, pain relief and and those things that we found like you know oh hey I was out gathering this herb and I found out if you chew on willow bark or get into a tea I feel a lot better and I don't have cramps as bad mm-hmm. but and so you tell you know you tell oh hey look try this when you're having, and then oh wait it works when you you have a toothache too and and oh, oh hey you've got a toothache suck on a clove and the things that some of the things that we've lost because we don't have those same oral traditions and and people don't like like how many of us knew uh, like a bunch about our periods when we were kids like mm-hmm. this generation knows a lot more about it because people are talking about it more but like when i was having my period the first time it was a mortifying experience because my dad figured it out before I did. And yeah, it's, my mom was at work. It was it was so awkward for everybody involved. <laughs> um, but like the things like that, I didn't find out until I'm like in my forties. Like, wait, the 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 bleaching in your underwear is normal. Everybody, has- I know, right? This, right? Or wait, what do you mean? Everybody like poops more when they're on their period. <laughs> Why didn't anybody mention this? But it's, it's amazing. Years ago, they did. And right. oh yeah, your pain levels are actually what everybody else is experiencing. And if you're having pain levels that are more than that, maybe you should talk to your doctor. Like, come on. Yeah. Or your doctor saying, "Oh, it's just your time of the month. Just, just it's it's fine. That's normal." It's like, no, no. I think this is more than normal. Let's let's. Uh, speaking of medicine. I'm about to make one of those recommendations that if we were all in real space, the entire room would kind of stare at me like I had lost my mind. Um, But Outlander does a really good job of having women as doctors. And um, like Claire is actually a doctor in the show. She actually performs medicine. She actually treats people. Now I'm gonna say the racism in Outlander is horrifying and I do not recommend season three at all. Like just (laughs) flat out. Um, (laughs) But that being said, she's still a doctor and she does some really awesome stuff in the show as a doctor. So up until the point where there's a whole lot of racism I recommend it. It is brutal. There is a lot of rape culture, but like yeah. if, you're at, if you're looking at women in medicine for, for fiction, it's not a bad place to track as long as you check your trigger warnings. <laughs> uh, but that's another thing. Uh, some of the knowledge that she, she brings back to the past um, that is from, hey, I learned this in school now, but it also exists as an analog. There's an analog in the past um, but hey, that analog kind of kind of hinky and maybe not the best connections. And yeah. okay, maybe women know too much, and that's why they're gonna get in trouble. So maybe, oh wait, that single woman that we kind of want her property—that's a really good mm-hmm. way of hey, mm-hmm. we'll just call her a witch, and then we can have it, right? Right, um, exactly. Um, you know, it's always funny. Like I work in science fiction, where you know, there's always the question of. Well, what time period would you go back to? And I'm like, none of them. 
Can I go forward? <laughs> forward, yeah. Forward, no. But even even on this topic of like witchcraft, I mean, women were the original brewers mm-hmm. too. I mean, they were the ones who were making these things. Uh, they they have evidence that women were the first bar keeps for the most part, brewing everything. And it actually ended up being a, a social stigma at a certain point where a lot of these brewers were either said to be witches or, or the men who owned taverns were upset that um, women had this space and were m- making money from it mm-hmm. and usually were better at it because they understood the herbal components mm-hmm. and they would drive these women out or, um, marry them and like take over the bar and and all these stories especially from early america um of these women yeah. barkeeps all over the place yeah also, and the spinsters another good one uh, like spinsters were women who made enough money from spinning because it was a skill that not the guy that a lot of use and hey they don't have to get married early and deal with a dude's emotions they can just go off and have their little nest egg and so, oh, it's bad to be a spinster. It's like, yeah, no, I'm good. I'll be over here. It's cool. I'm cool. No, I, you know, it's funny. I was talking about like how, um, how women, like single women have always been a part of our fabric of our society, but also how um, auntie culture functions. It's, there was a there was a convention called FireCon a couple weeks ago, which was the first BIPOC focused science fiction convention to happen, and it was really awesome. And one of the panels that they had was on aunties in fiction, but an auntie space I think is a really important one to talk about when we're talking about sort of the little touches that make it home because community, especially when we're talking about disnucleated community, mm-hmm. is about more than just mothers. Mm-hmm. There are people in your community who are aunts, who are sort of the outside. They might not be your mom, but you still listen to them. Because they're not your mom, it's easier to listen to them. Exactly. And I see that in queer culture now. I see that in polyam culture now. Mm-hmm. I see that in BIPOC culture. And it's this space that is sort of been building out where it's women who are not married. Sometimes they're queer, sometimes they've just decided to not get married, but like that's a space that I think we need to see reflected in our games as much as we see it reflected in our culture. Absolutely. Yeah, you, you always want the cool aunt that like, she just blows into town and like takes you out and does the things that, you know, mom doesn't really take you at it to do, but it's cool, you know, like yeah. she's the one who bought you your first drink when you were 21, possibly 18, possibly 16. We're not gonna talk about it. But she would. She was the fun person. But she treated you enough like an adult and acted like you were an adult when you were with her, so that you knew how to act as an adult when you were back in your own space. And, yeah. and having an yeah. aunt and having those people who are yes, they're role models, but they're not your parents. And that's a very important thing to have role models who aren't your parents, as well as ones who are. I mean, your parents, yes, they model things for you, but you need to see more than just that person those people immediately and i think in marginalized communities that happens a lot because um as the child of the seattle queer community as the child of a drag community like i have more aunts and uncles than i can count none of them are related to me yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I i tried to figure out like which of my aunts i'm actually related to once and it's just like okay 
And then, I mean, we were talking about this at the beginning of the panel. Like, I grew up in Fort Greene. I have aunties and uncles who are not related to me. They are the aunties and uncles of my block. And you respect them. And if one of the aunties yells at you, everyone freezes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but they are still, like, authority figures. Don't get me wrong. If, if you've suffered <laughs> up, they will let you know. And your mother will find out about it, too. But that's a different kind of thing. Like that's I, mean, I remember being I remember being the only white kid for like 10 blocks. And I learned very quickly what the rules were. And when I learned those rules, it was also you were the only white kid on the block, which means you're going to go talk to the cops. And that's that's the stuff that I think we miss when we write about things from a male perspective. Because I think all of the community building that we're talking about here tends to come from women and children. Yeah. And I think, um, I was just thinking about, I just was reading, um, was it Dead Blondes and Bad Mothers by Sadie Doyle. And oh, yeah. I really enjoyed that book. But one of the things that she really talks about is like, we talk about like what the like American family is, right? The nuclear family and how it took away all of those extra family members and there and put forward and um, lifted up this idea of the mother as this singular martyr giving up everything for her children and being left alone. Mm -hmm. And the more you think about how, how opposite that is from, from traditional families, from families all over the world, you know, it, the, the saying it takes a community to raise a child is absolutely accurate. And the fact that American culture since like 40s, 50s mostly has removed that, it's almost like this huge cultural gaslighting for I mean, every every woman, every mother. White, straight American culture, I think, is really what we're talking about. It's yeah. the middle class. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> because... Yeah, I mean tell you like my queer community was definitely not doing that and that's not how that worked yeah. <laughs> in, in, in the backgrounds that i come from like you know kids were adopted all the time they weren't legally adopted but like okay so and so has to go to rehab for a while so we're going to take this kid in for a while so and so uh, is going to go over there and, and work uh, a better job, but she's going to send money back. So we're going to take in her kid. Mm -hmm. Those kinds of relationships still kept going. Um, there's some uh, there's some communities still in the South where they're trying to to trace back the land and and get to, uh, some of the land rights that came to them after the Civil War, and they're getting things like getting caught up in things like, oh, well, you took this kid in and. I think this legally is your niece. So technically they can't really be in the secession line. So you're going to lose your, your land to this white developer. Yeah. Uh, and, but it's like, no, the, this kid has my name. This kid mm -hmm. has been in my house the entire time she's lived. This kid has, you know, my, I call her my daughter. I've called her my daughter my whole life. She yeah. thought of me as her mother, but, oh, well, we don't have that paperwork because, Hey, look, we didn't go get paperwork in the twenties and the teens because, you know, Hey, if you go to the courthouse, you're going to get kicked out of the back anyway. So why bother to go there in the first place? And so some of those things, uh, 
with the, the nuclear families and everything, those traditions that are assumed to be the best practices and things like, oh, well, black men are deadbeat dads. It's like, no, they just aren't necessarily married to the moms. And that's, but they're still heavily involved in their kids' lives. Yeah. Like to a degree higher than white men who are married to their parents, to their kids' moms. Like you'll, you'll see, you know, you'll the black men, man might not be uh, legally married, but that he's there for every birthday. He's there for every soccer game. He's there for every basketball game. He's there. And, you know, the white dad might be, okay, well, I have to work. I can't make it to that game. So it's it's not a it's not as clear cut as okay the nuclear family is the best because we can agree trying to make two people the end all be all of their kids' lives is just it's a lot of stress and this pandemic I think is showing everybody that way more than we thought. Uh, Funny, we were not expecting me to be a part of my partner's kids' lives for a while because they're tiny humans, and now I'm telling bedtime stories. So it's just that's kind of a part of. What's happening now is people have to get involved. And if you're in a pod with somebody who has children, guess what? You're probably stepping up because it's impossible. Yeah. Like I I was with my kids 24 seven for for a good four months. And it was like, I love you. But if I have to listen to you talk to me about Minecraft for five more minutes, I'm going (laughs) to Yeah, no, I was I on election night, my partner's kids both curled up on the couch with me and both parents just magically vanished. And I was like, <laughs> You're <taking a> break. <laughs> we we actually so just was- had a movie night. Uh my, my kid's birthday was Thursday, so we had a, a movie night. We pre- got a projector, projected on the wall outside. So it's four kids out in the backyard. And we're like, hey, if the parents want to stay and hang out on the front porch, we'll have snacks and stuff. I underestimated how much the appeal of wait, my kid's gonna be gone for a night was. <laughs> so we're gonna uh, it's okay. We love them. It's fine. Uh, but it's like I I did not think that thought all the way through. I can think of things I would do if my kid was gone for a night. Yeah, okay, makes sense now. Yeah. Towards the start of the um, of quarantine, our, we had a we had a pod with a friend, and they have a small child. And so they're suddenly all home with the kids. So we would we would make it a point to go over like every other weekend. And it would mostly just be, okay, you guys can relax. I'll occupy the little one now. <laughs> and sometimes you, you really do, like at a certain age, like sometimes you just really do just need a warm body to make sure, like, okay, if something catches on fire, we can put it out. Uh, and And... The kids are reasonably self-sufficient, but yeah. yeah. He's the only one to talk to about a video game. Yeah. The ones <laughs> are two and four, so it's a little bit more like, oh no, don't touch that. Um, yeah, mine, mine are 12 and 10, so they're efficient. Like, they can get themselves dressed and pick out their clothes and even do their own laundry at this stage. But legally, somebody has to be there. They can't be alone for more than two hours at a time. But they can talk like humans, which is really a nice thing. (laughs) Sometimes. (laughs) Uh, Do we want to ask any questions of the audience? We we have lots of lovely stories going on in the chat. 
Uh, yes, I've been keeping an eye, but I didn't see a lot of questions. Where is the chat? Because I have uh, no clue. So uh, we are on the Twitch TV um, uh, Dex Boardroom 1 channel. Oh, I, I don't yes. know where to find that. Because yeah, cool. Right, Great, cool. because I have That'd no idea where Twitch is. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry about it. I'll Uh... Yeah, lots of lots of interesting stories. Uh, uh, my dad told me when he was a kid, he put a rock on a grave and it hopped away because it was a toad and he hadn't realized. And I, I find that just so so adorable. Um, That's really really cute. Um, also, that frog was clearly Jewish. So. Oh, textiles. That's what we haven't covered yet. We haven't really talked much about textiles. Uh, so one of the things that uh, we're talking about when we're talking about world clothing is like, okay, what do your people wear? Uh, do they wear loose clothing? Do they wear fitted clothing? Do they wear hides? Do they wear uh, do they wear woven clothing? Do they sew? Do they just take a big sheet of woven fabric and wrap it around in an interesting way? And hey, I'm dressed. Um, those are all different choices that you can make. And and none of them are wrong. They're just different. Um, weaving is, I won't say incredibly difficult, but it is, it can be very fussy. Uh, it, depending on how much, how much you put into it is how much you're going to get out of it, uh, is the best way of putting that one. Uh, if, if you take a time to, to spin everything super fine, you can make something like spider web thin. But if you just, okay, I'm just going to do a quick we quick spin and I'm going to get a thick, chunky yard, you'll make a thick, chunky uh, garment, uh, fabric. Uh, and so from cultures where weaving, uh, creating fabric took literal hours and hours and hours to produce enough fabric to make a garment, you took care of that garment very well because yes. you could only afford maybe two of them in your And like, sort of on... Or in a, a, a reasonable period of your lifetime. Uh, sort of on that note, like, I know we all really love to have milestones in our games, like weddings. Mm -hmm. And if you're running a game that has a wedding, that is not like a one-time dress that is your best dress as the Victorians would say um, that is the dress you are going to wear to every single function for the next 10 to 15 years because that's what's going to be the money for um, similarly and the lack of pockets on women's clothing is a modern construction women have had pockets since the 16th century and it hasn't changed up until about I would say 1920 at which point women's pockets vanished. We got the vote, we lost pockets, don't know why. Uh, actually, I do know why, it's called misogyny. Um, but here we are, like, if you don't have pockets, then I actually think you're doing something wrong. So it's, these are the kinds of things that you need to think about. Pockets actually mean something in your society. Uh, there's a beautiful poem about pockets, dangerous pockets and women's coats that you can hand out seditious literature from. Um, and I think that that really says a lot about what pockets mean in your world. 
I mean, pockets are they were a, they were a separate garment really uh, yeah. for, for most of, uh, and so you had your skirts would be built with slits to the side so that you could access the pockets that were a separate thing, but they were tied under your clothes so people could just steal your stuff off of you. Yes, uh, which is a very also a very useful thing. But yeah, as as uh, silhouettes became slimmer, uh, it ruined the line of mm -hmm. you had stuff in your pockets. So you, they just got rid of pockets. So, you know, blame the flappers and those stupid slinky dresses for why we don't have pockets now. Because you know, slinky dresses. I'm, I'm really, I really do feel like there is probably some correlation between white women getting the vote and the lack of pockets. And I'm not sure what it is, but I feel like it's there because it's the same time period. I feel That's like I read something on that, but I don't, too. I can't remember it clearly. Yeah, there's also like the rise of accessories and being able to have like those beautiful, like their beautiful beaded bags started becoming really popular too. And so that became a status issue, status symbol. So now instead of your pockets being something that's hidden, your pocket is something that's displayed and everybody can see it and, and conspicuous consumption. And you're rich enough, you can do that. Yep. I'm just, femininity is often a trap. <laughs> <laughs> well, so let's talk about something else that uh, we, we consider feminine today that weren't originally like heels. Hate them. Uh, but that's a different story. Uh, but like heels were originally uh, a, a mannish thing. You know, men were heels because you needed the heel to keep your foot in the stirrup. And, and that's why, you know, and then, you know, okay, well, then it became a height thing, but that's what the original heels were there for. That your originally soles were just super flat. And now you had to add a couple of layers so that your foot wouldn't slide off the stirrup when you're riding your horse and you're charging at somebody with a lance. And now all of a sudden, you know, okay, well, let's, let's exaggerate this feature a little more. We're going to make them a little taller because I'm feeling a little short, and, you know. And and now, okay, well, women have, it's like, oh, fine. If you're going to be taller, I'm going to be taller. And I, okay, well, now it's somehow too feminine to wear heels because women wear heels. And it's like, why is it the second a woman starts wearing something, it becomes bad? <laughs> I mean, I'm just gonna go yes. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I have my master's degree in women's history from Sarah Lawrence. And um, a lot of the work that I have done has been on the space that women occupy in the legal system. So it's, it's, there's this, this space that women occupy where, look, we just elected a new president. I'm just gonna do this. It's fine. Um, Women were legal aliens in this country, like white women who had husbands who owned property were legal aliens in the United States until 90% through the 1800s. Then white women became citizens. Mm -hmm. But even then it wasn't actually with the vote. It was just you could have property. Mm -hmm. uh, these are the things that happen. It was a very, very slow build. So if you're building a world where women have legal rights, you have to recognize that they need to have been full citizens for a lot longer than women have been full citizens in this country because we're still catching up. Mm -hmm. And that's not with any marginalizations laid on top of it. Yeah. I mean, people like to say that Washington didn't actually own slaves, his wife owned slaves. But the only reason that his wife owned the slaves was because his her parents gave them to her as part of her mm -hmm. dowry. 
Yeah. And they kept them with her so that he couldn't just sell them off and take the money and run away and leave her destitute. Yes. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's a legal conceit. Oh, yes, she owns them. I don't own them. But that's what it's there for. It's like a level of protection. Uh, it's the same reason in some cultures uh, you have a lot of bridal jewelry. It's because then the jewelry is not something that your husband can just take away. Because yeah. it's your jewelry. One of my very dearest friends, her family is from India, and they they put all of these bangles on her, and they were, and I was like, "Wow, that looks really heavy." She's like, "Yes, it is. It's my escape hatch." Mm -hmm. It's like okay. I think something too to keep in mind when you're looking at these women's roles, and if you are building, you know, you're not looking in in Earth and our history, and you're building one from scratch, and especially if you want to make one where. You're not dealing with earthly gender roles and history. Mm -hmm. um, you still need to be aware of what these different roles are. Because the only way you can transgress something is if you understand mm -hmm. like that symbolism and how it has occurred. So even if your whole goal is to not have these same gender roles or to invert them in some way, you still have to have a full understanding of what they look like uh, in reality. And yeah. all often, sorry, oh, do, yeah. Too often we see, oh, well, we're just going to make uh, a benign matriarchy instead of a, a evil patriarchy, and it's like, no, that's that's not actually changing anything. You're just putting a pretty face on it instead of of actually doing the work of understanding what's going on here. It's like, okay, yeah, women are in charge now. Okay, what does that actually mean? What does it? You're a Star Trek episode now. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. We're going to put a different prosthetic on. Okay, I understand now. Let's just keep going. Oh, and, and see, you just opened the door for me, Misha, because you said the word prosthetic. Um, so, like, this is the other piece to it: is that women with disabilities, like disabled women, have been a central part of the mm -hmm. world for a long time. Our concept of disability only really started from what you're looking at it as from the Industrial Revolution, because that was when we started looking at bodies as machines and not as bodies. So if you're building a world where you have dis disability in it and you are not building disabled people in as central figures, if you are not having disabled women as mothers, if you are not having disabled women in as seats of power, what you're actually doing is following into an ableist systemic trap. So, and, I think that's another space where I think women have specifically been left out because we often look at disability as only being a part of a war acquisition narrative rather than it just being a part of the space of the world that we inhabit. And um, disabled women are so frequently left out of the world building that I think it's really important to highlight. Uh, I mean, disability in general, I mean, some of the... The, the the conquerors and the the thinkers and everything else have been disabled in some way or another, whether from birth, whether from battle, whether from accident, whether from you know something that happened in their lives, but that didn't actually change who they were. Yeah. They were still able to do these things just like everybody else. They just had to do some modifications to how that worked. And also, let's be honest: if you are writing in a world that is pre medical technology like we're talking about 90% mm -hmm. of your characters have a disability anyway mm -hmm. like they can't cure your hand if you get gangrene they're going to hack it off if it gets too far and then you just have one hand uh, your vision gets too bad that's unfortunate you're low vision now please continue sewing 
Um, <laughs> so your characters are going to have disabilities. They're going to have to cope. And again, that's all women's work because women were expected to continue no matter what their bodies did. Just, just because you couldn't see the kid doesn't mean the kid still doesn't need food or doesn't need, you know, a mom or doesn't need their diaper changed or whatever. Those things still have to go on. You're just going to have to figure out a way to do them otherwise. Um, and hey, look, we're back to disnucleation. How did that happen? Gosh, I, I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. <laughs> they're, they're, we're talking about too much. I, I know I can talk for hours if given proper amounts of lubrication um, for my mouth, but I mean I'm really just enjoying a, talking to you too, so yeah. I know this is a good group of people. <laughs> really, nobody has any questions. <laughs> I find that hard to believe. It's getting late. Yeah, it's true. Fair. It's been a long day. Yeah, the fireworks have already started. Where I am, people. It's ten thirty almost here. So on the other hand, so, you know, it's been a stressful day. Yes, I know, but still. <laughs> Ooh, we got a question. Well, I mean, that depends on what culture you're talking about. Uh, I'm Swedish. I grew up with a Swedish mom and with a Swedish grandfather and grandmother. My Swedish grandfather served in the Swedish military. And do you know what they teach people in the Swedish military? They teach them how to knit their own fucking sweaters. So I think that our concept of some of these crafts as being gendered is actually a modern construction. And it's worth kind of considering the idea of degendering them within the context of our games. Now, that being said, I actually think there is value in there being feminine skills. I do think it's important to give women space to be experts. So I don't want to take that away, but I do want to acknowledge like it depends on where you're coming at it from. Like sewing, um, a, a, your average bachelor may not have known how to sew a shirt, but he knew how to darn his socks. Um, and so there's different levels of those skills. Um, like even today, like you, you'll have people who uh, they can put together a quilt, but quilting is not the same as garment making. And nope. those are very different skills. Like it's one's more straight lines. And even within quilting, like if, if you like there's English paper piecing, there's, there's all kinds of like different subcategories that make a difference. Um, crocheting and knitting are very different skills. And even there, there's like levels of how skilled are you? Like, can I make a shawl? Doesn't necessarily mean I can make a pair of socks. Making a pair of socks is always tricky because you always end up with one that's a little weird <laughs> compared to the other. Like hand making socks is like a damn fine skill, and if you can do it, I'm impressed because I cannot. Uh, <laughs> and because oh, I, I hadn't had my microphone set up appropriately, the question that the uh, the panelists are answering is uh, uh, a lot of 
different crafts have been historically femcoded uh, and are being assigned, practiced by multiple gender roles, would you say that these crafts are being reclaimed or the very least removed from the binary gender roles? The next question from the audience is, what signifies home to each of you? So I'm Jewish. And on the right-hand doorpost of my home is a mezuzah. And that is part of what makes my space home. But it's also the fact that I have Shabbat candles and every Friday night I light Shabbat candles. And uh, right now that is just my partner, but in the future it will have more of my community. Um, so creating home is about the space that I create and that I consecrate. And sometimes that's at my place and sometimes that's at my partner's place depending on whose place we're doing Shabbat at. But I think that home is about community and about building spaces that we want to have. Uh, so the people that you invite into your home that you want to be around that you whether it's you that whether by birth or by choice the people that you choose to have around you are what make your home so some of them it might be a specific building that you gather in that becomes a home or it may just be that sense of okay when i am in this place with these people it feels like home when I am in this place with these other people, it feels like home. Like the lobby of Dexcon feels just mm -hmm. uh, as much a home as my house sometimes, you know, because this is where like, you know, the, this, the cabins at Camp Thirdly feel just as much home because this is where my people, these are where my friends are. These are where the, the people that I, I look for, the faces that I, I like to see are gathered. And so those are the things that make a home to me. And uh, Kristen, what makes so home to you? I yeah, this is like a really interesting question. So um, my husband and I just bought our first house. So we're, <laughs> so we've been setting that up since June. And it's really something that's kind of come into my mind a lot. Like what makes, I've lived in, I've lived in apartments my whole life, except for, you know, when I grew up with in their home. And like, what is it that I can do here that makes this my home? And I remember when we first moved in, it was it was hard to put that together. But now that I've gone through um, one holiday that I love, Halloween, I think one of the things that really makes this place home is the fact that I can do whatever I want with it. Mm -hmm. And not, not in a big way. It's just that, like, I can do things like put the pumpkin on my porch and that, that makes me happy. I can put out candy for people when they come out and have enough space when I, when I have people come over that like they can get things. And that I think is um, really what makes it home is that I have a space I can invite people to in normal circumstances and that I can do whatever I want. With. Right. Yeah, one of the things that I swore, I, I grew up on base housing for like most of my life. And so one of the things I swore, I was never gonna have another white wall in my house ever. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> And, and so that was a big thing for me. It's like when I finally moved out of apartments and things and I could paint my own walls, that was like, I have a home of mine. Uh, we have time for just one more question. Uh, Turnip Twinkle Toes uh, wants to know if there is a way for us to recontextualize birth as historically women's work when so many women, whether because of infertility, illness, or transness, physically cannot. Uh, they also stress that because they are not those things, let them know if this is a question that may cause harm. Birth, does, being able to give birth does not define womanhood any more than any other thing does. Uh, there are tons of women who can't give birth. There are tons of women who don't want to give birth. Um, and, and so it's, 
it's only the it's the I would say it's the realm of female bodies, maybe, but not necessarily necessarily women's work. Um, and, and that's a kind of subtle distinction to me. I mean, I'm going to come at that from a slightly different place. I mean, I'm I'm in this weird place in my life where, like, I don't have children and I may not have children and I don't know what that's going to look like. Um, and as a disabled person, that space has often been taken away from me by society because people assume I cannot have children. There is an assumption that because I have a disability and my uterus doesn't work. That's And that kind of, yeah, I know, right? Um, and so I think one of the things that we can do is to start putting people in our games into the space of being parents, not necessarily giving birth, but being parents that allows us to envision those spaces as being for more people. Um, I think also sort of decentralizing birth from the act of mothering, I think will help with that. Cool. You know, it's like, you don't have to be a mom to have given birth. You actually, there are many mom, there are many people who have given birth who are not mothers because they have chosen to not be the parent in that situation. So I think that's one of the ways to do it is to kind of say, well, we're decentralizing these content concepts and separating them. Sure. Now, before we um, call this, uh, Kristen, would you like to add in on that one as well? Oh, I just, I agree on all counts. I mean, a big part of decentralizing it is kind of what we talked about before with the complexities of family um, and that there, it being more community than an individual. And I think if you can, if you're building a culture, um, putting the emphasis on the family culture and the family, like larger like unit of um, community that takes care of the children, you're already decentralizing that away. Very. Well, thank you so much. And thank you to the audience members who did ask questions. Uh, if you guys would like to um, voice where folks can find you or your potential work online, before we close out the panel. We'll give you each uh, a single sentence and call it an evening. Uh, I'm Misha B, she, her. Uh, best place to find me is on Twitter at BG Gameworks. Uh, Kristen Roberts, she, her. Feast in time, time is in the herb. Um, I am at Feast in Time on every bit of social media and I have an ad for my consulting over on the uh, Metatopia link promotion page thing. So you can find it. I am Elsa Hunasal. You can find me uh, at Snarkbat, S-N-A-R-K-B-A-T, literally everywhere on the internet. Uh, if it's got the name Snarkbat, it's me. And um, <laughs> I'm available for sensibility, sens sensitivity consults uh, on disability. And um, yeah, cool. I exist in the world. <laughs> Uh, thank you so much. Uh, everybody have a good evening and 